0: happy new year to you and the first Sunday I couldn't ask for a better place on the face of this earth to start my year I mean that with all my heart I'm going to tell you something I was so caught up in the music today I sat there and I wondered what are other churches doing how disgusting it must be to go to church and have nothing happen it's happening here You guys are alive living this walk with Christ. It's breathing. It's living. It's got a heartbeat. It's got temperature. All your vital signs are just beautiful. I am so glad to be here. Of course, I have a very long history with this church, very long history with this church. But it's a wonderful history. And Pastor Dan, thank you for letting me come back. I wouldn't trade this day. This is perfect. Great to see so many of my lifelong friends, and I just leaned over and I said, "I've known that kid Josh since he was born, and uh, he had hair when he was born—a <laughs> uh, little more than he's got now." <laughs> it's great to see you, and uh, I'm glad to be with my wife here today. And we are in the midst of the most awesome beginning, and I know the word "awesome" is awesome. <laughs> It's the most overused word in the English language I understand right now. But there's not a better word for it. For what God is doing, it's just awesome. It's amazing. And this year, I fully expect it to be the most productive year for the kingdom of God we've ever had. Uh, I'm just lit up with what I see God doing already. And, you know, one of the great signs of God making big plans for your life is how the enemy fights it. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord lifts up a bigger flood. It's a contest at all times in the heavenlies. There's a fight for your life. There's a fight for your peace. There's a fight for your joy. There's a battle taking place at all times to take you out of the picture of the plan of God. Uh, And he's fought fought me. This uh, 2013 was a tough year, probably the most difficult physical year I've had in decades. But ended up being the best physical year. I'm in better health now than I've been in 25 years. And I'm able to write my contracts with the military to go into war zones again because they trust my heartbeat (laughs) before they didn't think it was going to make it through. I told them, I'm fine. I have angels. That almost cost me the contract right there. (laughs) Uh, They said, well, we don't know if we want angels in Iraq. Uh, They could use some today. But... uh, We'll be going into Afghanistan this year, working with our troops, and for those of you that are questioning what that means, I'm not an active duty, but I am uh, i am part of the uh, big picture of the Department of Defense for our troops as a resiliency coach in the Comprehensive Soldier Fitness Program, and my assignment is to share the love of Christ with our troops downrange. Now, that's a pretty good assignment, wouldn't you say? Isn't that just amazing? That is utterly amazing. and. They call me a spiritual pillar for the Comprehensive Soldier Fitness Program. Well, I'm not the pillar, but Jesus is. Amen? Wow. Boy, didn't, I, I tell you, that little Miss Reaver can sing, can't she? <laughs> woo, woo. All of them sang. I don't know what's wrong with that drummer. I thought he's pretty good, and y'all wrap him up with all that bulletproof glass there. <laughs> I, I thought he was awesome. Your, your pickers. If they're in the, sometimes they take a break after playing and singing all before they come in the congregation. But if that drummer's still here, would he come back up And your bass player and keyboard player? Would y'all come back up for a minute? Are you, are you in the room? If you don't mind, join me. and You're probably on the back row of the balcony, but I'll wait for you if you'll come back up. I, I'm wanting to play a little song at the piano this morning. I'm going to start my new year right. And, and uh, it's uh, Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony in D-flat, brother. It's <laughs> I'm teasing, Uh, but nobody is more ignorant than me to try and play a piano in the presence of Pastor Dan. You know know what I mean? It's like taking a water pistol to a four-alarm fire, and uh, I heard one guy put it this way the other day. He said he felt like he was a mule at the Kentucky Derby. (laughs) Never mind. I'm trying to... I'm trying to give time for these instruments to get handled. If they're not here, fine. I've got the keyboard artist. And uh, I'm going to play in the key of C, brother. Uh, That's all my fingers will allow. I was, uh, for those of you that we've never met before, which is unusual. Most people in the area uh, figured out who I was. Not that it matters, but at least we're not strangers. And uh, I didn't play the piano before I was injured in Vietnam. I had two lessons, actually. I was nine years old, and my teacher quit. Uh, can you lay that? Will that lay down? Uh, and that's the truth. Uh, her name was Mrs. Zimmerman, and uh, she gave me a hard time because I wouldn't use my thumbs. Well, now I don't have any. Well, actually, I've got one, but it doesn't work, and I've got half of one over here. I the pastor said high-five everybody. I high-five a half of them. Uh, but for me to play the piano, I have one finger on my right hand that works, and it went and got—it went and got— arthritis this year and that thing takes about a 30 degree angle to the right and so it's one way to Jesus. If you're a Democrat it's to the left and if you're <laughs> Republican it's to the right. And uh, and on this hand I have to I reach an octave with no thumb. And that's with no thumb. On the right hand because that finger's longer these don't straighten out but I use the back of my knuckles. So the the long finger hits first. And that's called, when you do that, that's called bent note effect, literally. Well, with me, it's broke note, but, but bent note, and it was made famous by Floyd Kramer in a song like this. That was for all you sinners. I've always wondered if Floyd Kramer had a hand grenade blow up on him to make his fingers work like mine do. But uh, I asked the Lord many years ago, I said, Lord, I I, I lost so much in the use of my hands that are mutilated, literally. I said, Lord, would you give me something that I never had to replace something I always had and will never have again? And the Lord gave me a passion to play the piano, and and the key word is passion. I'm gonna talk about that this morning. And so I'm sitting at the piano, not so much thinking I can entertain you or display any talent because, like I say, this room has so many great musicians. It's not playing for you to start with. I wanna give my passion back to Jesus. I want, to, I want to give what he gave me unto him with the added ingredient of my heart. He gave me his heart, and I'm putting my heart with his in, in this song. And if you can help me on the key of sea, uh, I'm going to tell you the name of the song so you don't come up later and say it's the strangest rendition of O Canada you ever heard. <laughs> but it's called How Great Thou Art. And... I'd like to play it for you. You can follow along. You have an ear for music. I have an ear for music. I play by ear. Mine comes off. I can play by ear. (laughs) Got you on that one. So you'll enjoy. We're going to do this together, okay? How great thou art. Oh, thank you very kindly. That's a really nice piano. I'm used to playing Yamahas. If you can't play them, you can write them. (laughs) I've really been in prayerful consideration for several weeks about what I wanted to share today. And there's something that I think is important. We sometimes make abrupt change and fail to carry over, to bring along with us uh, the lessons of the past. And last year, there was a theme that seemed to permeate uh, the ministry in a large way. And it was a theme of passion, and I'm going to talk about that, but I'm going to add to that passionate part the thing I want to bring into 2014 into our ministry into my life and into our uh, perusal today from the from the book of Acts if you would go to chapter 26 I'm going to do a, a short reading and then I'll go to uh, Galatians after that but let's let's take a quick look at this I'm going to apply it to personal experience if you will but I want to preface it by saying please don't think I I speak about myself uh, because I think it's important to talk about me. But personal experience, testimony, is far more influential in substantiating what you're trying to say than somebody else's personal experience. So I will talk about Paul, but I'm going to talk about Dave Reaver too because the lessons taught by Paul were learned by Dave. And there's something about the lessons of Paul, and this won't, I'm not going to keep you long. Uh, I promise to be considerate of your time. But Paul is such a powerful presenter. According to Rice University professors many years ago, Rice University being one of the great think tanks of America, a center for philosophical uh, training and instruction, uh, it's a powerful university and among some of the philosophers teachers teachers of philosophy they came to this conclusion that paul was probably the greatest apologetics preacher or apologetics presenter that ever was he was so capable of substantiating verifying and the thing that i believe made his preaching so powerful was he preached with passion You read the stories and the preachings and the teachings of Paul and it it just exudes passion. Statements like, I have not been disobedient unto a heavenly vision. While said before his death, I believe it may have been the last thought that went through his mind when he was beheaded for the cause of Christ. It's kind of an unusual way to go out. Not everybody gets beheaded to go to heaven. But I gotta tell you something. The guy lost more than his head. He lost his heart for a purpose. A passion without a purpose is pitiful. What good is it to have a passion and and an exuberance with nothing that it substantiates? It's such a waste, a loss. And I see it among young people so often. I've seen them fight for causes that have absolutely no, they have no reason, no permanence, no change of lives there's just they fight for nothing they're rebels without a cause is a phrase that we've all heard before Paul was standing before Felix and Agrippa and in verse uh, 27 of chapter 26 whatever I gave you earlier uh, he goes before the king and he speaks of himself I'll go back to verse 24 And he stood before Festus, who was an officer of the court. And he said with a loud voice, Festus did to Paul, Paul pleading his case. Paul, thou art beside thyself. Now, that's an interesting statement. Not many people know what that really means. When I was injured in Vietnam and the grenade blew off 60% of my skin, I was beside myself. (laughs) Uh. I needed to pull myself together, you could say, because all that skin was floating in the river around me. Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But Paul responded in verse 25, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak forth the words of truth and soberness. People are called fans of football or rock stars or causes. They're called fans because it comes from the word fanatic, fanatic. Uh, A fanatic is a passionate person Paul was a passionate person to the point that he could I I hate to do it this way and I didn't think of this earlier but it comes to my mind I I remember whenever I was speaking for the NFL uh, pre-game chapel for the Rams when they were in Anaheim and (laughs) There was a guy in front of us at the game after the chapel. They let my wife and I enjoy 50-yard line seats. And there was a guy in front of us in a barrel. He was wearing a barrel. I'm thankful to God that those suspenders didn't break. (laughs) It was bad enough just to see what we saw. But I looked at that and I said, now that's, that's a passionate fanatic. Paul was a passionate fanatic about Christ and the cause of Christ, to the point that he, he, he was like a madman. Have you been so fanatical or passionate about something? People think you're a little off, a little weird. I have it happen all the time. Unfortunately, I don't have to say anything if people look at me and think that. My wife even asked me the other day, how do you want to die? And I said, baby, what did I do wrong? I thought I was given the option. <laughs> she said no I mean when you die how do you want to die I said I don't know but I know how I don't want to die <clears throat> and it's in contrast and the reason this came to my mind was talking about this precious gentleman you mentioned even before service who uh, passed away and what a what a beautiful way to, to go and at 92 years old to be there having been with his family prior to that and and to be able to have a period at the end of the sentence. I think there will be many periods at the end of my sentence. Dot 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 because I don't know that means the sentence really isn't finished. I I said, Brenda, I know how I don't want to I don't want to go all laid out to rest with my hands across my chest and my fingernails have never been so clean. I wanna I wanna go out flying a plane upside down through a barn. You know, I wanna I wanna go out with passion. I wanna slide through the pretty gates with Blisters on my feet and my hair on fire, even though it's a hair piece, it doesn't hurt so much that way. You know, it's like I can set the hair on fire and throw it in and then slide in behind it. Uh, but I, I want to go in with passion because I went through hell to get there. You know, there's something about life right now that at 67 years old, I've never been more passionate, never been more busy, never worked harder, never loved it this much. I feel like right now I'm more productive than I've ever been in my life. And I think 70 might be the perfect age for a man to reach the peak of his productivity in life. So I've got several more years to really get to the point that I can make the strongest influence and difference in the lives of our young warriors, in the lives of America's youth. I feel like 70 is a good year. I'm still doing public schools. I thought I'll never be able to relate. At 50, I thought, well, it's downhill from here. You know, At 50, I said, they're not going to listen to an old man anymore. I have more joy and more response and more enthusiasm from the kids about my presentation in public schools now than I ever did. And I think it's because they're looking for a grandpa that stands for something. Because mom and dad have lost what they stood for, if they ever stood for anything. And I'm not being mean to a younger generation following me, but so many kids, they... The family is just totally, I've never seen families so messed up as they are today. Today's family structure is so utterly mixed up. If you you think you're going to find a family tree, you're going to find a family bush. It doesn't have a trunk with limbs. It's just a bush. I, I have warriors come through our program 25 years old on their third marriage with seven children from his, hers, theirs, and somebody else's. Kids, and they all have different last names. I, I, I just, I sit back and say, boy, I, I don't know what to do to help you. Well, I do, but it's not an easy path for them. Paul was passionate. He was enthusiastic. He kept these focus. And when he said to Agrippa these words, he he was type A personality. You ever heard of that, type A and type B? Type A is the aggressive personality that kind of, well, it answers the question for you that he himself... It's like I ask you, how you doing? I know you're fine. Uh, my wife is type B. She's quiet. She thinks about what she's going to say. And I never do that. I can't wait to speak to see what I'm going to say. I, it's, <laughs> it's curious to me. I, I sometimes sit back in amazement. <laughs> uh, some good, some bad. <laughs> but Brenda thinks before she talks. And, and it frustrates me. I'll ask her a question, and there's a pause. That pause just then just irritated me. That's too long. You're supposed to come. And Paul said, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. He answered before Agrippa could say anything. Believest thou, the prophets? I know that thou believest. I know you believe. And Agrippa said, Paul, almost you have persuaded me to be a Christian. Now, you'd probably say right off the top, ah, he's going to talk about the power of decision-making and the loss of not making that right decision is eternal. Actually, I'm not talking to a bunch of warriors that have never known Christ, have come through the crisis of their lives. I'm talking to the household of faith. It's Sunday morning, for goodness sake. Sunday morning, this isn't Saturday night at a bar, an evangelistic effort trying to win the lost. I'm in the house of God on Sunday morning. Yes, if you're lost, you're in the right place to be found. But I'll tell you right now, the overwhelming majority of people in this room are going to blast out of here when that trumpet sounds. I know that. So I'm not trying to go after the lost individually or specifically. It's a bigger picture because there's something else that happens. When Agrippa said to Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian, it's Paul's answer that just changed my life. He said, I would to God, which is like saying I wish above everything, that everyone that hears me this day, we're not only almost, but we're altogether persuaded, such as I am, with only one exception. He said, I don't want you to be wearing handcuffs like me. I don't want you to be in bonds. I don't want you to be in bondage. And right there is the revelation of something magnificent. Why was he in bondage? Why was he in prison? He didn't have to be if you don't know the rest of the story. In fact, if Paul had not appealed to Caesar, he could have been delivered at that moment. But because he appealed to Caesar, now the appellate process has to go through the court system and he would eventually be beheaded for his preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ if he had not appealed to Caesar well why did he do that because his passion was greater than his fear his passion was greater than the knowledge of what would be the result of him appealing to Caesar he wanted to take the message of Jesus Christ to the highest level possible in government Pastor Dan for years as I was coming up through the years of ministry of the Reaver Evangelistic Association uh, my peers were always a few steps ahead of me their development process was two or three years ahead of me and and there's a reason for it because when I was going through Bible college studying for the ministry right in the middle of it I got my draft notice and I took my physical and it was only exam I passed that whole semester you know I got an O plus on the blood test. <laughs> Did you get it? Uh, and they told me I was going to be inducted in the army, so I ran out and joined the navy so I wouldn't get hurt serving in the military. And my second day in boot camp, they said, uh, uh, "You're you're going into the navy, and uh, you went to college, and you're the only one that went to college, and uh, you you went to college." When you're the only one who went to college, it's questionable. I said, yes, I, my grades were below sea level. And being that it was in the Navy, you'd think they'd catch it. But my commanding officer was a real short fellow, and he just went right over his head. He missed it completely. And he said, you're leadership material. And I'm thinking, a Bible college flunky is leadership material in the U.S. Navy. I said, we're going to lose this war. There is no way we're going to win this war if I am their last best hope. My passion for the ministry had its greatest challenge at that point in time to be suddenly involved in a war that would put me into harm's way. And I'm diverging to give you a little testimony here. The fact is, I was in the Navy, but I'd never been aboard a ship. I was never on a Navy ship. I was put on a little fiberglass riverboat featured in a movie called Apocalypse Now and more recently featured in a movie called Act of Valor. And the little riverboats that are they are part of the Navy SEAL team, uh, I was a brownwater black bray assigned to SEAL Team 1 in the U.S. Navy. That little boat is one of the most dangerous jobs in the entire arsenal of military activity. We had the highest per capita death rate it was always started out as MIA, missing in action, because when those boats get hit and explode, the bodies go down with the boats, and they're most of the time not recoverable. And as a result of years passing, all the MIA were turned into KIA, which is killed in action. I had a guy try to sell me a cart the other day spelled KIA. <laughs> Can you imagine every time you look down at the steering wheel, it says, you're going to die today. <laughs> Killed in auto. And on July the 26, 1969, the country that I am incredibly passionate about would cost me more than I ever dreamed possible. I never suspected that I would survive what I went through. The day it happened, I knew I was dead meat. I called it right there. I said to myself, this is my last day and moments from now, my last breath. Fighting for a country I could barely speak their language. That's speaking Vietnam. In America, I'm good at it. It don't make no difference. Know how I do it. So I'm pretty good at English. But to to die for a country that I just barely even knew where it was on a map. My passion was not so much for Vietnam not even so much for democracy in Vietnam. My passion was for my nation. I was sent to do a job and I love my country. And I wanna say this so everybody understands, I hate war passionately, but I love freedom just a little more passionately than I hate war. So I'm gonna say to every Vietnam veteran in this room, I'm proud of my scars and stripes and I'm glad that I serve my country And I have no regrets. I have no what ifs or wishes of this or that about the past. And I'm honored to have served with the valiant men and women who fought in the Vietnam War. God bless every Vietnam veteran in the house. I love you. God bless all of our veterans. Amen. God bless our wonderful veterans. my point is Paul died for something he believed in. 59,000 Americans died for the country they believed in America. I was so near death. I actually had the sheet pulled over me several times and was listed as, as literally they, they called it. They said he's dead. One time they pulled the sheet over my face in the operating room walked out and the scaffold was still stuck through my chest where they went into just below my vocal cords and turned it sideways, trying to let air get into my collapsed lungs. And they re they reinflated, but so slowly, they walked out and left me in there with a sheet over me and a knife sticking up out of my chest. And the mortician assistant came in, this is the way it was described to me, and I blew the sheet off in his face and he almost died. <laughs> so I've been down to the wire. When I was injured, I was listed as killed in action for many, many months. I didn't get any pay. They were processing insurance for my wife. And... Finally found out he ain't dead yet. And 34 years after my injury, the Senator for the great state of Texas wanted to know why my name was showing up in in military records in Iraq and Afghanistan. So they investigated to see who I was and found out he isn't dead, he's still alive. And I finally got all the medals that I had never been given after the war in Vietnam, including a Purple Heart. So I was like, wow, I'm alive. I'm alive. It's, it's, it's kind of like that silly Sonic commercial right now, this knucklehead in the front seat. says, I'm going to live. I'm. It was a dumb commercial. I just, I saw it once. That's where I should have paused, thought about it and not talked about it. But that day on that riverbank, passion took over the life of Dave Reaver. Passion took over the life of Paul the Apostle. Let, uh, the Apostle, let me put it this way. If you don't suffer for something, I seriously doubt if you've ever had a real passion about that. You can give a kid a car, let him take out here, mom and dad's car in the parking lot on a rainy or snowy day. He'll do donuts in, in the Walmart parking lot and knock the bumper off on light standard. And, oh, well, dad's got insurance. But when it's his little Pinto and he worked at McDonald's for three years to make $500 to buy that little Pinto, it's amazing how he treats that. He washes it every day, spit shines all the rust spots and everything. You know why? Because it cost him something. David said to Arana, if I'm saying Arana's name properly, when Arana said, I'll give you the threshing floor, I'll give you the altar, I'll give you the sacrifice, I'll give you everything. He said, I will not offer unto God a sacrifice of that which hath cost me nothing. Because David was a man of passion. Until it's cost us as a nation to stand for Christ, I don't know that we'll ever stand for Jesus as a nation right now. Little inklings of the coming, of the coming suffering, are showing up. Imprisonments coming. Threats of death are coming, and death will follow. You mark my words. We're going down a path that has no return. Well, it does have return. The return of Jesus Christ, <laughs> and. Uh, And then who's laughing now, amen? So passion without a purpose is pathetic. It doesn't create, it doesn't develop, it doesn't grow. It's just, there's nothing to it. It's a sham and a shame. But I found passion because it hurt like nothing I've ever known in my life to physically hurt. I've never known pain like being burned. And half my body, almost half of it lost its skin. Have you ever put your face in the pillow to scream because it hurt and you didn't want anybody to hear you scream? I lifted my head to take a breath, then I screamed again because I didn't care who heard me. I looked down and my face had come off. It was stuck to the pillowcase. And I screamed again because now the visible image competed with the physical pain. And it evoked an unsolicited scream. Oh, God. I remember when they put me in the in the tank where they they take all the dead skin off it Debreedment, they call it and that, that word just sounds like pain Debreedment, and they splashed water on me and I that felt good and I said do I get rubber duckies and no one laughed I was the only one thought that was a funny statement and then I saw why a few seconds later at some given signal by one of those doctors they reached in those smocks or whatever you call those white garments and pulled out their scissors, their pinchers and pliers. And they started skinning me alive and they have to do it quickly because you can only stand so much and there's not enough drug medication to take the pain away. And they can't put you to sleep because they have to do it every day. If they put you to sleep every day, you finally don't wake up in a permanent coma. Hypothalamus of the brain shuts down, you're asleep and that's it. So you have to endure it. I remember I grabbed one woman by the hair of her head. She was a nurse, and I dragged her clear into that tank that day, and I buried her face down, and I was trying to drown her because my brain says, she's trying to kill you. Fight for your life. They wrestled her free, and when she stood up again, my blood and my skin was all in her hair and all over her, and she reached back in that swamp and pulled out another instrument because the one she had was down in the bottom of the tank, and... And after me again, she goes because she had a passion to save my life. Regardless of the consequences of my behavior or the consequences of her own disillusionment that could have come out of that. She could have said, I'm through with this job. walked out, but she didn't. If you believe in something, you're willing to suffer for it. Paul gave his life, which brings this question. Is there anything in life worth dying for? That one... That one fell pretty quietly, not flat. It's standing before you in a question. Every one of you in this room listening to me are having to answer to yourself. Do you believe there's anything in this life worth dying for? And immediately a quip little answer is, well, I'd die for Jesus. I'd die for my family. I'd die for my wife. I'd die for my husband. I'd die for my kids. I'd give my life for my grandkids. I, I, I know. But when you get down to it and the ax is about to fall on the back of your neck, are you willing to die for something you believe in? That's a powerful question. Well, let me answer it this way. If there's nothing in this world worth dying for, there's nothing in this world worth living for. Because if there's not something bigger and greater than the cause and the sum total of Dave Reaver, if there's not more than me to live for, there's nothing that I would be willing to die for. Just go ahead and live your little stinking life. If there's nothing more for me to attain and reach than just me, it's a pretty pathetic life. And yet, that's how most people live their entire lifetime. It's for themselves and for their own gratification, for their own purposes, visions, and, and, and things to satisfy them. Me, my wife, my son, John, his wife, us four, no more. If that's the way you want to live, go for it. But I can tell you this, you'll die a miserable death one day. And the challenge that'll come to you, you will remember what you could have died for. And now it's too late. So Paul stayed faithful. He did not lose his heavenly vision. From Galatians 6 and 9, the Bible says, don't weary in well-doing. Don't get tired of the cause or the purpose that God has given to you. There's a time when in not surrendering to the flesh, there's a time comes when not giving up before you cross the goal line. There's a place in your life that if you don't weary, The reward is phenomenal. There's no explanation of what that reward is. The greatness of that reward cannot be described. Think about what I just said. Don't weary in well-doing. One day you will hear, well done. thou good and faithful servant." I I don't personally want to hear it that way. When you're burned, you don't want to be called well done. You know, you kind (laughs) of. Jesus, you could say, you did good, Dave. Come on in, but the well done part we can. That was stupid, but I thought I'd throw it in. It kind of keeps you hanging on here. The theme that I have presented to the ministry this year is to not weary in well-doing. I have already seen the signs of weariness. I've already seen it. Some of our donors who have stood behind me for years have now backed off and cut in half, or one cut 75% of his his, uh, giving off because of whatever reasons of economy, I wanted to write back, I wrote back a thank you letter, but I wanted to write back and say, whose economy do you live on anyway? Do you live on a world economy that says health insurance, you'll never be able to pay it, it's too expensive, so you got to hold back and and quit giving to the causes that you believe in for self? I wanted to do that, but I didn't, because I thank you for keeping 25%. I, I appreciate, that is to say, I understand with meaning and careful consideration The fact that we live in a strange economy. It's up and down. It's everywhere on the the accounting books. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm not investing my life for Dave Reaver. I turned 67. When I turned 65, I went down to the Social Security office. My wife dropped me off downtown Fort Worth, right in front of that place you go in, the Social Security thing, There was no parking there, so she drove off and was going to wait until our cell phone called her and said, come get me. And within minutes, that cell phone in her car rang, and she said, what? I said, come get me quick. She said, what's wrong? I said, baby, come fast. This place is full of old people. (laughs) I did not sign one single solitary piece of paper in that room. I walked in, and I saw those old people sitting around. I said, I don't belong here. Brenda, baby, come get me fast. She went back and signed all that stuff as the power of eternity. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess I'm signed up for Social Security. I don't know, because I ain't going to live on. I've got a purpose and a cause, and I want to slide through those pretty gates at the finish line. And he says, you did good, Davy. Come on in here, Bubba. That's what I want. I don't want to get weary with doing well. Don't let 2014 be the year you slack off. Don't let 2014 be the year that you say they're just too much at risk for me and my family. Let me tell you something. There's too much at risk to lose by not doing what God called you to do. Do it with passion. Do it with purpose because the passionate purpose-filled life is the only life I can imagine living. And I live it so full every single day of my life. Now, it was a rough start. One year ago today, I was still laying in the hospital because they cracked my chest open and, and they fixed a broken heart physically. And that one hurt. Boy, I didn't know about that. I never had anything like that where they just, break your ribs. They broke my ribs and everything trying to fix my heart. They said my my heart had a widow maker that was shaped like a parrot's beak and they couldn't put a stent in it and the other arteries that needed to be fixed all had to be fixed without medication or a stent. But when they said that the widow maker was shaped like a parrot's beak, my wife almost fainted. And the doctor grabbed her and said, what's wrong? She said, you don't understand. You see, the parrot's beak is the name of the place in Vietnam where a sniper's bullet almost sent me home to glory. The parrot's beak is a place in Vietnam on the border with Cambodia that's shaped like a parrot's beak. And right at the very peak of the, shir- uh, of the parrot's beak is where I was shot. For them, at that hospital, they wouldn't have a clue. But the parrot's beak has huge emphasis for me. And I'm going to take you to conclusion on this. When I was there during the war... That's where all the activity was the worst because the Parrots Beak was the closest place to be to the capital city, capital city of South Vietnam and you could still be in Cambodia, which was considered a safe haven, although we did cross that border many times in pursuit of the enemy. And on July the 26th, 1969, at the Parrots Beak at a village called Tutua, I almost lost my life. Many years passed. In fact, That village was the turning point in my life. I had called an airstrike in on that village after the Vietnamese inhabitants had left those that were still alive. They ran for their lives. The communists had come in, and they took over that village, and they killed the little school teacher and her little children. And when I arrived that day in our little boat going up that skinny little man-made canal, bumping along the bottom in our proper prop-less boats, we had air jets and you could bounce along and touch bottom and it was still okay, but it was not okay that day when I saw smoke coming out of the tree line when I turned up that little canal. And when I arrived and I saw the strewn bodies of these little children and that teacher. And I knew the communists were now hiding in the bunkers in those little hooches. Every little house hooch had a bunker in it, and they were down in there hiding because we had powerful 50 caliber guns on those boats, and there were two boats, two teams, myself. And the other boat. I was the lead boat and they were the cover boat. And whenever we got up in that village, I realized my guns weren't going to do any good against those bunkers. So I keyed the mic to the command control center and I said to the CCC, would you please send us heavy firepower? They launched F-14s off of an aircraft carrier and the U.S. Navy sent in thousand pound and 500 pound ordnance to drop bombs on that village. Even then, there were some of those hooches that had remained. And the army followed And with their big tanks. They would roll through those hooches up on those bunkers and crush them in. And they would bury alive the enemy. Now you'd say, wow, powerful firepower. You beat the enemy that day. Yeah, we did. But someone else got beaten that day. And it wasn't just a concussion ring that came off of that long drop whenever they dropped the bomb just a second late and it landed between the village and me. And it hit me so hard that it bruised all of my internal organs. I was bleeding out my eyes, ears, nose, mouth. I was a mess and felt like I'd been run over by a truck. Probably with the damage only not leaving tire tread, but probably the same damage. I thought that day I would be better off dead. And I went on a mental hiatus. And I said to myself, I will not take my own life but I will put myself in a position to have my life taken because all my dreams of ever doing what I'm doing right now, standing before God's people, hopefully with instruction and and encouragement and passion to preach the gospel whereby men can be saved, I never dreamed this day could come to pass. That day I lost my hope. And I volunteered for every dangerous mission that they came up with, and those missions were into Cambodia in little, literally, three-man teams, myself as a machine gunner, a sniper, and a boat operator on a little Boston whaler. And we would go back into places that nobody ever dreamed we would send our soldiers or our military to get the the enemy. My death wish almost came to pass. And on the 26th of July, as I've already told you, I came face to face with the death angel. That day, he blinked, not me. At that point, for the rest of my life, I would suffer the consequences Of a decision made that would haunt me that decision was made at a place called the Parrot's Beak out of more out of a sense of obligation and regret certainly not conscience I didn't feel any guilty conscience for taking the life of our enemy but I went back to that village and out of my own pocket I had bought 5,000 little yellow furry ducks in big baskets full of ducks and they were scattered all over the base of this big boat that I borrowed without them knowing it, but I borrowed it from the U.S. Navy a little further up the river. It was a troop lander, troop landing boat. And the entire bottom of that boat, which normally would be full of troops, was covered in little yellow ducks. It looked like moving, white, uh, moving yellow carpet. When I got there, we lowered the front and all those little ducks, well, they invaded Tutua. As they crawled off of that landing machine and were all over, the village came running. Children were holding little ducks. They were laughing. They were crying. I made friends with a village that I had almost exterminated. And of the children that got the ducks that were not killed that day, that the communists took out that teacher in that little school, those children are still alive today. In our work with Vietnam, I hope you get this, I do what I do in Vietnam because I love the country. I installed a 14 million, $14.7 million wing to the Win Chai Hospital. And it is a cardiac care center and installed a Toshiba digital imaging machine that we can do catheterization of the heart. We can find all these damages even in the liver. It's such a powerful unit. And in doing that, I made friends with that country and on the, on the 20th of October, 2010, the Communist Party attended and allowed and made legal the permission for me to preach the gospel and build churches legally in Vietnam. I got so excited, I sold my world headquarters, which was in Saigon, And I got $1 million, actually $998,000 what I got for that building. I sold it, put the money in the communist bank. It pays 14.4% interest. That's the communist bank. Pays 14.4% interest. Now, you can't take it out of the country. You have to reinvest it in the country. I didn't want the money back here. I sold that building got a million dollars, put it in the bank and every quarter I draw out enough communist interest money to build a brand new church without touching the principal. <laughs> hey, I like me now. The communists are building my churches in Vietnam. And they came to me almost a year ago and they said, we have another place if you'd like to build a church. They gave me a location to build a church. I said, you're inviting me to go somewhere and build a church? I don't have to scout it out? No. Would you consider building a church that can double as a community center for the Red Cross? In a little village you've probably never heard of, it's in a place called the Parrot's Beak in a village called Tutua. I said, let me think about that. Amen, yeah. <laughs> we just dedicated that church two months ago in the very place that my blood, my DNA, is sown into the soil of a nation I fought and almost died for. They're building and have finished, and there's a congregation of 150 Vietnamese in that church in the very place <laughs> I was injured. You know why? Not pointing fingers to me because it works for anybody. When it costs you something, you don't throw it away when it gets hurt or when it's broken. If it costs you something, you will invest in it to preserve it, to propagate it, to move it forward at all costs, no matter what. And I'm going to tell you something today. At 67 years old, I have only one regret, but I'm seeing that regret erased slowly and it will be gone before I die. And that regret was this. If I was going to hurt this much, this long for a cause, I wish it had been for the cause of Christ instead of America. Now, America is a close second, but the cause of Christ will always be the first. And if I was going to hurt this much, I'd rather stand here and say they tied me to a stake, stacked the wood, and I was burned at the stake for the cause of Christ and survived. But No. I was burned in the cause of freedom, which included for the Vietnamese people, the cause of Christ. So I am working my way toward the fulfillment of a dream because I will not weary in well-doing and I don't care if I have to go alone. I will finish the course that is set before me and nothing shall deter me from my appointed destiny. I will not be denied my destiny. God paid a price, gave his son, his son paid a price, gave his life, and he doesn't throw away what he died and bled for when it breaks or when it's hurt, he restores it and will finish the course. With that, I will close. I've closed once, but I like to close. When I close my Bible, it's a serious closing.